Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home. In this episode of The Bell Tell, COVID-19... Has it really just disappeared? In the last few hours, Northern Ireland confirmed the UK's third case, its first. Northern Ireland's devolved government has told people to work from home if possible. Northern Ireland's hospitals are under pressure. And with winter looming, they've now asked the army to help. At least 3,445 people died with COVID in Northern Ireland. There's no doubt it was a huge challenge for the health system. Tell us what it was like. Hell. It's really difficult to have all of those patients pass, even though we have fought so hard to save them. Kids off school, businesses closed down, masks, gloves, hand gels. Some of us even washed down our shopping. Northern Ireland is now set to impose the toughest coronavirus restrictions anywhere in the UK. Was it all necessary? And if it was needed, then why was the whole testing and lockdown regime dropped so quickly, despite the Office for National Statistics saying that there's an uncertain trend in infections here after 1 in 50 people tested positive in August? COVID-19 hasn't gone away. Many of us are still catching it. Two years ago, we learned a new urban ritual, booking online to come to one of these. Testing isn't ending, but these centres have now closed. Joining me to discuss COVID-19 is the Belfast Telegraph health correspondent, Lisa Smith. Lisa, I suppose for almost the past three years, a major part of your life as health correspondent and as a normal person as well was dominated by this thing, by this word covid and now it seems to have disappeared like snow off a ditch. But has it really? COVID's still here. We still have lots of cases of COVID. In fact, I caught it myself recently. About four weeks ago, I'd managed to avoid it for the entire pandemic. And uh, I, I got hit by it about four weeks ago. Um, I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't a nice illness. I obviously didn't need hospitalised or anything. Uh COVID is still out there. It's going to continue to cause us problems, but it's at the moment not causing this, the kind of difficulties that we saw at the start of the pandemic. You know, 
basically 100% of the population now is either vaccinated or had COVID, so they have some kind of immunity to the virus. The virus itself has changed from what we had at the beginning of the pandemic, so we aren't seeing people becoming seriously ill the way that they were at the start of the pandemic. And of course, the way we view this virus now is very, very different. We aren't testing anymore. Um, so we have a rough idea of what's going on from the Office of National Statistics, but that isn't a definitive um, guide of how much COVID is out there. We also know um, from the number of people who go into hospital who are testing positive of COVID, with COVID, that gives us an indication of what's going on in the community. But it, we don't have definitive numbers it's wrong to say that COVID's not there. It's not causing the destruction that it once was. Are people still dying of COVID-19 here? There are still people dying with COVID. We see that weekly. We get our statistics through weekly from NISRA. And there are some people still dying from COVID, but nowhere near what, what was happening at the peak of the pandemic. I was speaking to a, a a consultant this morning who who was, you know, right at the front line um, of the pandemic right throughout it. And she was saying that she is no longer frightened of COVID the way she was at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, we're seeing people going into hospital because they have a broken leg or they've suffered a stroke and they happen to test positive with COVID. We are not seeing the, I think, you know, we're talking a handful of patients perhaps now at the moment who are requiring hospitalisation because they have the virus. But it all starts to seem then, I suppose, because we know there are there are there are people out there who are very skeptical about the whole thing. You know, when we now say we're not after so much testing and we're driving in in our cars and getting tested by a man in a spacesuit, and we were getting tests from schools were demanding tests. Uh, we were getting them free, etc. And now, and then we, you know, we, you had to buy them, etc. And now they're just they're gone. And and I mean, it does seem to have happened very quickly in the end that this major cataclysmic event, the event of our times, and everything that went with it, just boom. I said. Two years ago, we learned a new urban ritual: booking online to come to one of these and testing ourselves in a controlled environment. Testing isn't ending. But these centres have now closed. I don't think it's right to say that it has just disappeared. You know, we are two and a half years into this. Um, it's easy now to look back and maybe be a bit blasé about what it was like at the beginning and forget those feelings of fear that we all had at the beginning of the pandemic. And I think those feelings of fear were right. They were correct. You know, I remember at the very, very start of the pandemic going to um, a media briefing at Antremeria Hospital. And while I was there, I just got chatting to uh, Seamus O'Reilly. He's the medical director at the Northern Trust. And it was just, you know, he made some, I, I suppose at the time, they seemed like off-the-cuff remarks. Um, but they really, really um, instilled a feeling of concern and fear in me because this was someone who's very, very senior in the health service, really, you know, involved in all the strategies, knows what's going on, got his finger on the pulse. 
And he told me that they were concerned that they wouldn't have enough ICU beds, that they were going to have to have, uh, doctors were going to have to make decisions over who would get ICU beds. And that was the first point in the pandemic when I really realised that things were going to be difficult. You know, that our doctors were genuinely scared about what was going to happen. This was a completely new virus. We had no treatments. We had no vaccines. Um, And I think the lockdown was proportionate. It was required at the time. It's easy now we've got the vaccines. It's easy now we've got the immunity, the treatments, to look back and think that it wasn't required. But that's certainly not the case. Some people were getting changed in the shed or I was forced to change my clothes and put them in a bag in the toilet under the stairs, a bit like Harry Potter. People were washing their vegetables. I, I know someone who told me, I don't know who it was now, Lisa, who you know put their letters out in the sun. That was me. That was you. <laughs> that was you me. You know, um, so, and I, I remember driving home from Belfast on a shift the whole way down to outside Newry and I mean, I didn't come across a single car and it seemed like this was post-apocalyptic. But that was necessary, you feel? That wasn't, we, did, we didn't overreact. I don't think we overreacted. I mean, I, I told you my, my husband was clinically extremely vulnerable. So we got that letter home basically saying that he was at risk of, you know, very serious illness, potential death. We took our children out of the childminder. We complete. We live in the country. We completely withdrew from society. I was the only person who left our house for a period of months Um, You know, it has caused difficulties for our children. There is no doubt about that. But at the time, we didn't know what we were dealing with. We were told that we had to be very, very careful. I I told you, I I was the only person who went to the supermarket. I went to the supermarket bare below the elbow, wearing face masks, you know, using... um, cleaning my hands left, right and centre. I was so careful. But then we didn't have COVID in our house for years, it obviously worked, um, the measures that we were taking. And uh, when you've got a loved one who may die if they get this virus, you do have to take it seriously. And we did see places like I remember in, in the Republic and in, in they opened up for Christmas and they allowed everybody to party in Christmas and uh, I remember one place, I, and I'll just decide not to mention it, the, the name because I don't want to, to, to it, it was well reported, one particular small town in the west of Ireland and everybody had a great Christmas and they all went out to the local hotels and bars, etc. And then the entire town was hit um, by COVID and it took an awful lot of people, including, you know, well-known people from the town. There is evidence that when we did relax and when we did lower our guard down that that sometimes a terrible price was paid for that. Yes, there's no doubt about that. And you need to remember as well, going into this pandemic, that we weren't in a good position. Our public health isn't wonderful. We have a large, um, you know, obese population. And as I was speaking to the consultant this morning, she was, you know, at pains to point out that a lot of the patients that she saw were obese. You know, they weren't 80-year-old, fragile, very frail people. They were perhaps a man in his 50s with children who was overweight and that put him at greater risk because of this virus. You know, we we know that uh, the first Christmas of the pandemic, we opened things up. 
the health minister subsequently admitted that that, that was a, a mistake, that we, sh- we shouldn't have done that because it led to a rise in cases. That rise in cases led to a spike in hospitalisations. And a result of that, you know, a slew of cancer operations were cancelled. And those people came to harm as a result of this. And that was one thing that I was always very keen to kind of point out throughout the pandemic. This wasn't just about people falling ill with COVID. This was about people who were maybe on their way to work and would be in an accident or diagnosed with cancer. Um, And then they just couldn't get the care that they needed. You know, the, the health service, while we concentrated on COVID and, you know, there is an argument that people have come to harm as a result of that, um, we, we had to protect our health service. We went into the into the pandemic with a workforce that was totally on its knees. They had just come out of strike action because they couldn't cope with demand. They couldn't cope. They didn't have the workforce there. So, you know, it was an extraordinary time that, that called for extraordinary measures. Over the last three days, senior staff have been remarkably candid with us about uh, the extent to which this hospital suffered that at points was teetering on the edge of collapse. How did our our, our health service fare? You know, looking back, looking looking at it coldly, how did they do? How did they handle this huge event? The health service, uh, they they did a wonderful job. Our health workers were incredible. Um, And again, you know, we hear them being criticised now by people um, you know, for for their TikTok dances. Uh, these were people who were wearing uh, face masks. They were getting welts on their faces. You know, from from they they weren't getting to the toilet. They weren't getting water. They were holding people's hands as they died. They were holding up iPads so that people could say goodbye to their loved ones. They were wheeling them to windows and watching that. The, I mean, the trauma of that, the sheer number of patients who were losing their lives, you know, that they had never encountered that kind of level of death. Tell us what it was like. Hell. It's really difficult to have all of those patients pass, even though we have fought so hard to save them. Uh, The health service had to change the way it functioned very, very quickly as well. And that's another reason why we're seeing difficulties now. If a patient has COVID and they're in the hospital, it slows everything down because they have to be moved around. They have to be uh, put in specific wards. You know, there, there are lots of different processes. We look at our GP practices. They had to change the way that they operate overnight. The whole system had to change very, very quickly. But it has taken a terrible toll on the service and the service is going to struggle for years to come, I would imagine, as a result of this pandemic. So, I mean, the service has been damaged. Absolutely. But like I say, the service was in a terrible shape before the the pandemic. You know, it really was on, on its knees. That, that's no exaggeration. Our waiting lists were horrific whenever the pandemic arrived. Um, and our waiting lists are just... There, there are no words to describe our waiting lists now. They are horrific. Outside ICU, a senior consultant's brutally honest assessment of what's happening. Well, we are not doing cancer surgery for likes of bowel cancer, kidney cancer. Um, we're severely hampered in our ability to do breast cancer. Um, on other major orthopaedic procedures as well, we're not able to do. 
and things you know we're trying to rebuild things but we're coming into a winter we've we're coming out of the summer which has been fairly uh, difficult for the health service so far we're going into winter now covid is still circulating it's likely to increase over the winter i don't think well the optimistic position would be that it's not going to result in mass hospitalizations again but we are probably going to have a difficult flu season uh, Australia and New Zealand have just had a difficult flu season and that's likely to come here. We don't have the same kind of immunity that we did to flu now because of all of the measures that we took throughout the pandemic. Um, so the winter is going to be really, really tough. We mentioned GPs there. And again, neither of us are medical professionals. So we should no one should take this conversation as 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 coming from that point of view. But GP services have not returned to what they were. You know, common sense tells us perhaps they never will. It's hard to see your GP face to face. I mean, for a lot of people, a lot of people, lay people will consider that a big deal. A lot of people considered it very um, important to go and speak to the GP. Now, maybe people went and spoke to the GP far too often, but. Um, that seems to me like a big deal. Well, I think that's one of the areas, you know, I'm saying that they transformed overnight. Um, there were a lot of GP practices which were actually going to that phone first system before the pandemic arrived. And that was simply because we don't have enough GPs in Northern Ireland. So it's very, very easy to sit here and, and attack GPs and say, you know, they're they're shut, they're closed, they're not seeing patients. That's not the case they are seeing as many patients as they possibly can with the workforce that they have and the hours in the day that there are. What is happening now is they are triaging, they are prioritising because of the, the sheer volume of calls that they get every day. There just aren't the GPs there to see the patients that are coming through. So yes, they accept themselves that there is an access problem and there is um, an issue particularly around telephone lines and getting through. If you have to phone at half eight in the morning, I know what that's like. I'm a mum on a school run. It's difficult. You're making perhaps 100, 200 calls to get through to the GP. And then you've got your children in the car or you may be walking into the school and you've got to try and explain, you know, a personal medical problem in, in order to be triaged to, to see or speak to the GP that day. But that is the system that they have in place at the moment that they believe um, allows them to see as many people as possible that need to be seen. Um, they accept that, you know, there are access problems. The issue, it is something that is being looked at by GPs. They want to put a better place or better system in place. Uh, work is being done, I know as well, to try and upgrade phone lines to make it a bit easier. I actually noticed my GP surgery the other week. I had to make a phone call and for the first time ever, I was told where I was in the queue. So um, it's a small small move but at least I knew I only had two people in front of me whereas before I would be listening to you know a vacuous tune for half an hour before I got through uh, so those are the types of things but again we need more GPs and the problem is because there is so much pressure on the GP system at the moment we're seeing GPs leaving left right and centre there are more and more GP surgeries at risk of collapse those patients then get sent out to other practices, which increases pressure on the other surgeries. It makes it more difficult for 
existing patients to get through. It's a really, really, really tricky situation um, and one that isn't likely to be resolved soon, unfortunately. You know, for so many kids, I mean, they don't like school. Well, they say they don't like school, but it's a fundamental structure for many uh, kids. There's the discipline, they learn, they interact with other kids, they get a school dinner, etc. You know, so many kids lost out on an awful lot of schooling. Now, for some kids, were very easy. You know, they, they, they could work at home by themselves. For other kids, that, that didn't happen, for example. And for other kids, even apart from the educational value, I know an awful lot of parents have said they feel that their kids are very, very negatively affected by, by this whole thing with COVID. No, that's, I, I accept that completely. And I will use my family as an example. My son was two years old when we went into lockdown. And I've said my husband was clinically extremely vulnerable and we took very extreme measures. So he was two and one day he was going to preschool and the next day he stayed at home and he stayed at home for, I would say, up to six months. Now, we live in the country. He, The only person he saw outside of our family for that period was the postman. And it got to the stage where he would chase the postman down the driveway, shouting at him. He was too young to be able to FaceTime. He was too young to be able to telephone other family members. He didn't understand what COVID was. He didn't understand what a pandemic was. He subsequently started primary one in September past, and it has been a really, really difficult process. He has really struggled with school. And I know that there are quite a lot of other children in his primary one class when he started in September that had similar issues. You know, the whole socialization, he missed out on so much, so many experiences. I think he was in Tesco maybe a handful of times before he was four or five years old. You know, so that has impacted on his speech and language. It's impacted on his ability to socialise, to communicate. And, uh, you know, he really does struggle with school. And I believe that that is because of the the lockdown. Um, And there is an argument that perhaps more could have been done to allow young people and children to continue on with their education in as normal a setting as possible throughout the pandemic. But it was so difficult because we had to protect the different uh, generations. And, and like I say, it wasn't just 80-year-olds that were that were dying from COVID. And even if it was, is it fair? You know, why are their lives any less than anyone else? But in my, my home, you know, we, we had a, a man in his 40s who was at risk of serious illness or death. You know, he still works. He still pays his taxes, he has three children. You know, he's got a lot to offer society and, you know, his right to life is just as important as anyone else's. There is a a great deal of work to be done now to to get those children up to where they should be. Um, And like I say, there is no doubt that people have come to harm. We know that mental health, for example, has been greatly impacted by the, by the pandemic. We know that the economy has been, you know, massively impacted. And, and look at the state of the health service. Look at our waiting lists as well. But I don't think necessarily that's the lockdown. That's COVID. And unfortunately, COVID came and we had to respond to it. And uh, I think that, like I say, the lockdown was proportionate at the time because I dread to think what would have happened if we hadn't locked down when we did. 
Lisa Smith, health correspondent with the Belfast Telegraph. Thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar, sound designed by Graham Davidson. The clips are from Sky News, the BBC, and UTV. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.